we are here with Yanni Schnitzer, who um, is a PhD candidate focusing on medieval Kabbalah. His dissertation is focused on the Kabbalistic system of thought of Rabbi Joseph Ben Shalom Ashkenazi. Have you ever met somebody with that in their bio? Johnny is also preparing a critical edition of Ashkenazi's commentary on Sefer Yitzira, probably the only PhD student in Jewish philosophy who can say that he once beat the head of Israeli naval commandos in a swimming race. Johnny is also the author of Mossad Thriller, The Way Back, which paints a picture of contemporary Israel. Johnny has recently orchestrated the publishing of an English edition of the Hitler Haggadah, he has also taken on several leadership roles in the Jewish world, including advisor to the CEO of Birthright, an executive manager with Stand With Us. He lectures on a wide variety of topics relating to Judaism in Israel, especially about the untold stories and unspoken heroes of Jewish history. Johnny's happily married with four gorgeous little kids, lives in Israel, Ranana, and thinks that Australian rules football is the greatest sport ever invented. Johnny shared with me many uh, provocative, interesting topics, but when he said the four books that changed history, Jewish history, I said, we got to do that. So Johnny, the floor is all yours. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for that warm introduction, uh, uh, Rabbi Shmuley. And thank you again, Pam, for all of your help. And thank you all for, for having me here, the uh, uh, Valley Best Midrash. Um, so what we're here to talk about uh, is the four books that changed Jewish history. Uh, what is our question? We have one simple question. We want to understand in the short time we have to spend together, what does it mean to be Jewish? Now, we're not going to answer the question of what it means to be Jewish, surely, that that's taken thousands of years and we're still not there yet. But we are going to take four stops. We're going to look at four books that created a revolution, an incredible ripple effect, and each one had a different version of what it meant to be Jewish. We're going to start with the Bible, where the story begins, the Torah. We're going to see and we're going to give an interpretation of and it's, you know, it's, it's open for discussion what it means to be Jewish. We're then going to move on to the Talmud, to the Gemara. You know, we're talking sort of a couple of thousand years later, the, the, the written oral tradition. Um, and we're going to see what the Talmud has to say about what it means to be Jewish. And our, our focus is on the commandments, how each book is, how each book views what is the purpose of keeping the commandments? And, and what is this mode? What is the, how were we meant to act? So we start with the Bible. We move on to the Talmud. Our third book. We're now talking medieval era, a thousand something years ago. We go to Moses Maimonides, right? And this is incredible because this is, if the first two books, one is, is, is by God. The second is, we'll get to that, but it's like a whole bunch of minutes protocols of rabbis from Babylon to Israel. The third, one of the most influential books was written by a single, single person, Moses Maimonides. And, and, and we're going to talk about, you know, how, how Maimonides write this, the, the rational revolution that built the bridge between Athens and Jerusalem, what, what it meant then to be Jewish and how that changed everything. And we're going to conclude with the Zohar. We're going to conclude with, conclude with Kabbalah. And, and we're going to look at how, and, and the Zohar is going to be our sort of representative case study uh, of, of Kabbalistic text to see what Kabbalah did uh, 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 to all the rest of the books, how Kabbalah viewed uh, uh, the role of a Jew, what does it mean to be Jewish, and why keep mitzvahs? What, what's the purpose of commandments? But in order to start, to sort of give us a, 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 you know, a, a interesting context, I wanna tell you a short story. A few years ago, 
um, there was a, a small bookshop in Norway um, that was about to go bankrupt, right? They, they, they were about to close down. Why? Because of digitization, ebooks, no one buys books anymore. And so they wanted to save the bookshop. So they had a brilliant idea. They said, we're going to create a subjective lexicon. We'll get to that in a moment, but it, 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 we're going to create this beautiful book, leather binding, and we're going to get the best authors. It's going to be this beautiful creation. And we're going to promise it's never going to be an ebook. And if enough people buy it, we might be able to, to save the shop. So I was very curious. I heard a lexicon. So what is a subjective uh, dictionary? It means that, say, if we have a, a, an item, uh, uh, you know, say, death or Jew, for example, which we have Jew, and we're going to read it in a moment, and this is what got me interested in this subjective dictionary, then it's, it, it brings truth back to the subjective, back to the individual and not the sort of cold objective truth. So I thought it was a good idea, and I bought a copy, uh, and I bought it just because I was curious to know how did the subjective dictionary define a Jew? And this is how we're going to start. Uh, so bear with me one moment. Okay, Jew, what do I win? Oh boy, says the voice, just you wait, just you wait. A prize like this comes along once in a, well, once. And you, buddy boy, you are the big winner. So get used to this voice because we're going to be spending a lot of time together. And I mean a long time. Is it a job, he asked. No, absolutely not. Although there is quite a, a lot of work involved and a lot of responsibility. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was some large scale suffering down the line and the payoff will always be semi-opaque. Just give it some time to, to get into the rhythm of things. Eight, nine generations, and then it'll become your thing like freckles or, or being vegetarian. But why me? Ha, says the voice. What a Jewish question. Why you? Because you're chosen. Yes, but how was I chosen? How is anyone chosen? I put a bunch of names inside a rotating cylinder, uh, cracked the sucker up, and presto, here we are. Here you came. That, that sounds kind of random, he says. Maybe, <laughs> chuckles the voice. Or was it providence, divine providence? Ha, see what I did there? One man's fate is another man's rotating cylinder. That's called metaphysics. He nods, not really understanding, but also not wanting to look dumb. They chat for a while longer, small talk really, until he gathers the courage to ask his final question. So what's in it for me? And, uh, you know, th this, uh, whoever wrote this, it's all anonymous. It's, you know, there's so much that could be said about this, but I want, I want us to have this sort of in the back of our minds because there are a lot of chosen people is a very heated topic, right? This idea of, are we chosen? Are we really chosen? What does it mean to be chosen? We're going to look at these texts and we're going to look throughout history to see, you know, we're going to touch upon them, right? This isn't, like I said, we're not going to answer things. If, if I'm writing a PhD in Jewish philosophy, it means by the time we're done, you're going to have answers to nothing, only questions, hopefully, with a smile on your face. And if you have questions with a smile on your face, then we've succeeded, we've done something. So that's our question. What does it mean to be Jewish? A simple question, and we're going to survey these, these, these incredible books. Before we begin, one final introduction, the challenge. Why is this question even important, right? We all have views. We all have ideas of what it means to be Jewish. I, I uh, research manuscripts, and I am fascinated by physical books and what has happened to the book over time, meaning how do we intake knowledge? 
how do we, what is our relationship with, with, with a physical, this physical object called the book? And how has it changed the question of what does it mean for us to be Jewish? So in a nutshell, what we have on our right is a manuscript. It's a beautiful uh, 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 12th century manuscript of the Torah, the Bible. And we see the beginning, Bereshit Barai Elohim, right? In the beginning, one of the most famous mistranslations of history. We'll get to that in a moment, in the beginning. But in any event, when you, when you once opened a manuscript and you, you looked at the book, you saw, if you like, let's liken what we're talking about to uh, an article, a journalistic article, and then op-eds. We used to read the article straight from the source. Something happened in Italy in the 14th and 15th centuries. We have these Hebrew printers and the, the, the printing press revolution. And all of a sudden, our page gets very crowded. All of a sudden, notice, without reading what's going on here, that, that you have these big words in the middle, Bereshit Barai Lokim on the top. And all of a sudden, the original article becomes a very small portion of the page. And it's filled with op-eds that were written in different times of Jewish history. One written in the 13th century, one written in the second century, and so on and so forth. And before we know it, our view of what it means to be Jewish, we come to ask ourselves, oh, which book is it based upon? Is it even based upon the original article? Is it based perhaps upon a certain op-ed? So we're going to look at this original article, our Bible, and we're going to look at three, um, in my view, and I think it's safe to say, you know, generally three canonic books, um, the Talmud, the Guide for the, of the Perplexed, and the Zohar. Okay, so this is our challenge. This is why we're doing this. Let's begin with our first book. Let's begin with the Bible. Okay. Let's say, so how do we choose if we buy a book today, right? Let's have this as, as sort of as tachless as, you know, as sort of straightforward as possible. You go to Amazon, right? You, you have this, right, this uh, option to look inside, right? We all do this. This is how we choose if we want to buy a book. So imagine we're living 4,000 years ago and we hear about, you know, everyone's raving about this new book. It's a best-selling book. It's called the Bible. And, you know, so you go into Amazon, you click and you want to know what it's about. Now, this is fascinating, right? Because usually if you read the first page of a book, it tells you quite a bit about, you know, am I going to like this? What's it about? What does the beginning of the Bible tell us about the Bible? Right? In the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth, the earth was astonishingly empty with darkness upon the surface and the deep and the divine. Do we even understand what's going on here? But, but more importantly, do these first verses reveal anything about what the book is about if i asked you i'm sure each of you have in your mind what is the bible about i'm not looking for deep profound answers i'm looking for the sort of back of the cover when a literary agent wants to know if he's buying the book to sell it to mass production what is it about right we're told here about a god that, that's starting to do something but is, is that what the bible is about is it about god maybe it is i don't know you know each of you have your own view Right. And this is our question in one sentence. This is the challenge. If you had to take a pen and paper now and write down, what is it about? Right. So if you ask me my proposition, it's, a, it's very simple. It's a, it's a book about one God that chose one people, gave them a, a new culture, sort of divine culture, or a new set of rules, and asks that they keep these new set of rules, this one people given by this one God, in a specific already existing piece of land. That's the story, right? Simple. Without, I'm not getting into sort of, you know, the, the grand purposes. That's the story. 
we have here a new God, one God, one people. And, and, and if we think of the context, right, we're living in a sort of, uh, you know, think of Abraham, idolatry, this multiplicity of gods. We're suddenly introduced to this new idea of one God. There's one people. What's going on here? But you know what? Here's the interesting question. Let's say you agree with me. Let's say we all agree that this is the story in a nutshell without getting too complicated. If this is the story, then if, if this Torah is so good, why is the biblical model such that God shows one people over Sinai? Give it to the whole world. Maximize your market. Right? The, 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 what, what's the point? Remember that it's only later in time that Jewish interpretations of the Bible teach us, right? Op-eds, and I'm purposely being provocative, teach us what actually happened was that the other people didn't want it and the Jewish people wanted it. But we're going back to look at the source. The source doesn't say that. The source says that one God shows one people and we have to ask ourselves, why? It's not ethical. It seems, it seems unfair. If it's so good, if it's so divine, give it to everyone. Let, let's share the love. This is a difficult, what's going on here? Okay, so because our time is short and we need to cram in these four revolutions, I've chosen one passage, or, or, or three or four passages, but sort of one section from Leviticus. Uh, uh, and we're talking here about, uh, um, okay, so why the model of one nation, right? So, and, and, and remember that the question in the back of our minds is what does it mean to be Jewish and why are we keeping commandments? Very simple. Okay, so you shall observe and uh, observe all my decrees and my ordinances and perform them, yada, 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 in the words of Seinfeld. I am Hashem, your God, who has differentiated you from the peoples. I have differentiated you, meaning I, now the Bible is, is, is clearly revealing to us uh, 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 that we are meant to be differentiated, right? So, so, so we, we are told this. We're not, so we're not told that others didn't want it. We are told that there is this, 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 this innate ethical idea that requires differentiation. There's something that, that mankind have to learn throughout history. We're going to learn it the hard way. And it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be ugly at times, very ugly. But it requires separating a people. And it's been, going to become very obnoxious and very difficult. There'll be programs. Why? Because when someone says... When you're differentiated, you start thinking, wow, imagine the boy or girl in kindergarten who says, I'm, I'm the chosen one. She, the kindergarten, you know, they chose me. Oh, oh what's that going to do? If one of my kids comes home and says, you know, it's, it's great. You don't do that. You don't do that. You keep your head down. You do what you got to do, you know. So, 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 and not only that, by the way, interestingly, one of the, the most incredible prophecies in the Bible, imagine it doesn't matter our personal belief system if the Bible is Godly written, written by 10 gods, female gods, masculine gods, 10 men, 10 women, transgender. It doesn't matter. One of the fascinating things is we all agree it was written a long time ago. Plenty of the manuscripts are fairly, you know, similar. God says you're always going to be a small people. I chose you because you're small. I need you to be there. I need you to be differentiated. You're not going to be Rome. You're not going to be Greece. You're not going to be China. You're always going to be small. And that's fascinating culturally. Right? This is a prophecy. But we're not here to talk about prophecies. We're going to see what happens soon to prophets when we get to the Talmud. And it's not pretty. So, so this, and, and, and without getting too much into this, so, so okay, so, so God, now this is interesting. God has chosen us. He has differentiated us. And remember, 
This is the same God that at the very start of the book, what does he do? He differentiates between heaven and earth. He's differentiating throughout all days of creation between the firmament and, 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 uh, and the seas, right? God is differentiating just like God has differentiated between a people chosen, not necessarily because they're the best chosen because you need to be chosen for some ethical teaching purpose throughout history. And, and then get this, what are the Jewish people doing throughout the Bible? What are we told? We are constantly doing what God did to us. We are constantly practicing the act of differentiation. We are differentiating between uh, a Sabbath, between sanctity and the mundane and the regular. We are differentiating between kosher and non-kosher, between pure and impure. Lehavdil, to differentiate, is the verb that continues to come back and forth, back and forth. When we're talking about these texts that appear in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, mainly about perhaps this purpose. So what could be suggested, and here we're going to then keep on, what we could suggest is, and this is in the words of the great, uh, uh, you know, may his memory be a blessing, Rabbi, Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, Zecher Tzadik Livracha, he wrote this beautiful book, The Dignity of Difference. And this idea, in a nutshell, that the, the ethical purpose of the Bible is to teach about the dignity of difference, to teach us that we are all different, yet all equal. And the only way you can reach this idea of being different but equal is through this difficult process of purposely singling out one people, giving a, a different system. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's not making you best. But it's remember the Tower of Babylon. There was this idea of let's all be the same. Let's all unify. God says, no, I want you to. We're all different. We're all different, but we're all equal. So so but but that's that's just a thought. Right. And it's a grand thought because from uh, Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs, that's all. But but in any event, as we conclude our first stop, the first revolution, which, if we like, gives us the answer to the what, what are the Jewish people? And according to this book and the sort of the view that I'm sort of chucking our way, it's to differentiate. Why be Jewish? You're meant to differentiate, differentiate things. You are meant to differentiate yourself. There is some ethical. Uh, the assumption is there is an ethical purpose. And this is why you keep commandments. By keeping commandments, you are differentiating yourself because you're not doing this, you're doing this, and so on and so forth. Okay, let's close the curtains. This is our first book. We bought it. We have it on our bookshelf. We have now one book in our bookshelf. Okay, this is, this is more than 4,000 years ago. Okay, now we're going 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. So you have your one book on your bookshelf. You have the Bible. You're told you've got to run to Barnes and Nobles. Why? There's a new book in town and it's becoming a bestseller. It's called the Talmud. It's called the Gemara. So what is this? So according to Jewish tradition, right, we, we have the Bible, which is the written tradition. But we are told there's a tradition that it came with an oral tradition, something that could not be written down. And then 2000 years, 2000 years later, there is this fear that it's going to be forgotten. And all of a sudden, this oral tradition that cannot be written down is written down. And, 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 and it's thousands upon thousands of pages, right? If at first it was enough not even to need a bookshelf, for the Talmud, you need a bookshelf, right? Thousands of thousands of pages. And what is it? So if the first book is, according to tradition, given by God, it's divine, and it's about differentiation, our second book is thousands of pages of, if you like, minutes or protocols, protocols 
from study halls, hundreds, thousands of study halls spanning from all over the Middle East. And they're interested in one thing, not what does it mean to be Jewish? They're interested in how to be Jewish. That is the key word, how. We are going to see that the next revolution is a revolution of asking questions. It is simply non-existent in the first book. Ask yourself, when does the first question beg itself in the Bible? It takes a while. Now let's look at the first page of the Talmud, right? Tractate Brachot. So, so, so again, essentially, before we get to this, so what is the Talmud if the Bible has all of these you know, rules? Like you need to say Shema Israel. We need to say a certain prayer. But it doesn't tell us exactly how or what or when. So if the second book is all about how, it is going to give us a short passage called the Mishnah, which is the bottom line, the law, what you need to do. And then you're going to have all these minutes and protocols of different views, a multiplicity of, of pluralistic views of you need to do it like this, you need to do it like this, and it's very colorful and so on and so forth. And we're going to touch, up, touch upon the unique characteristics of this book. But first, let's look at the first page, because you've been told to run to Barnes and Nobles, because there's this new book that you need now, and you want to judge and you want to ask yourself, you know, what is this new book about? And this is fascinating. Okay, because if we have our first book, we saw the first page, we saw what it looks like in the beginning, God created. Okay, what do we have here? This is the first page. From when may we feel the obligation to recite the Shema in the evening? From the time the Kohenites entered to eat at nightfall, uh, these are the words of Rabbi Eliezer. But the sages say it may be recited until midnight. Rabbi Gamliel says, yada, 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 so forth, so forth. Okay. So a few interesting things. We notice. That, okay, so first it must be said that if our first book is written in Hebrew, our second book written 2,000 years later is written in bits of Hebrew, but primarily in Aramaic. Interesting. Different. Okay. But if we can get by that, the real story is how it starts. Because if the first book began within the beginning, the second book begins with a question. That's what matters. We want to know how to be Jews from when may we. OK, so that's the first thing. And by the way, this 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 culture of asking questions is is knows no limits. There is not a single rock that we are not going to 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 turn over in order to understand how to be a Jew. You know, I'd like to share with you a story. Um, it, it's a bit sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, I'll share it because it's it's the first bit of Talmud that my father ever taught me. Okay, so, so I'm going to say because this is what my father told me he wanted to prove a point, so I'm going to pass it on. So he brings out the tractate of Gitin, right? It's all about uh, essentially, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, marriage, what happens, things work, don't work, so on and so forth. And, and, and one of the discussions there, okay, this is a bit sort of uh, um, 18 plus, so I'm sorry, but you know, like I said, this is what my father started with. Um, he wanted to teach me this. Okay, there's a discussion in Talmud. Let's say, uh, uh, you know, what binds, contractually binds man and woman together, right? What has to happen? And several things have to happen, right? They, they cohabitate, right? You have sex, you, you make certain vows, so on and so forth. Okay. So we're talking about sex. We're talking about what has to happen. And they both have to agree. The Talmud, this is, right, this is an example my father wants to show, to, to sort of emphasize that what does no rock unturned mean? In this question asking, new question asking culture that didn't appear, was non-existent in the first book. Right? The Israelites, all we do, we complain. We don't ask questions. We say we want to go back to Egypt. We never ask questions. Okay. 
the Talmud tells us that there has to be consensual relations and then that, you know, that they're together. And then the rabbis come and ask, wait a second, could you give me a scenario where, you know, it's, it's not consensual sort of, you know, where things happen by accident. What is it? What, what is by, not, not, not talking forceful, but what is an accident? Is it even possible to have accidental relations? And if there are, you know, is it binding or not binding? So the Talmud says, no, if it's accidental, it's not binding. But the rabbis want to know. So what is what is accidental? Is it while one of them are asleep and one gets on top of the other? My, pardon my, you know, whatever. And, and then get this. There is a view that says, no, I'll give you another example. Because the Talmud says, no, that's not the case. Clearly, clearly that's not valid. The Talmud says, you know what? What if the guy is standing on his roof? He's fixing, fixing railings. He falls off his roof into a woman. Is that by accident? And my father says to me, I'll never forget this. My father says to me, this, this is, you're not going to stop at a single rock in order to find your answer. And there are two important points to be made here. The first is there is no censorship in the Talmud. From Jesus to sex, the original uh, Talmud, right? There, there was a censorship at, at some point in history where Jesus and bits were taken out. But go back to the original, right? They spoke about everything. Everything is on the table. And why? Because we won't stop at anything in order to understand how to be Jewish. What does this mean? So, okay. Another interesting thing about this passage is we have a new character that simply did not appear in all of the Bible. Imagine if you walk into Barnes and Nobles, there is surely one word in this paragraph that you are not familiar with. You have no idea what this title is. And that word is rabbi. What is a rabbi? I, I know of a prophet. I know of a judge. I know of a king. I know of a magician, a sorcerer. I know of donkeys that can talk. What is a rabbi? Right? This, this, is, now, this is the fascinating thing. We can, we can like the halachic revolution. We can like rabbis, dislike rabbis. Everyone loves Rabbi Shmuley. That I know. Everyone knows that even in Israel. It's, it's a fact. But, but the rabbinic revolution is the longest surviving revolution in Jewish history. This, this is incredible. What did the sages do? What did this book do that lasted so long? So, so they, they did something. They, they had to do something. But we'll get to that in a moment. So we might be tempted to think, right, this is just about the unique characteristics of this book, and then we'll, we'll rush along because our time is short. Um, so we might think that the Talmud is a sort of the sort of source of Jewish rationalism, right? The source of Jewish logic, because we ask questions. And Aristotle and the Greeks ask questions. I'd beg to differ. The Talmud, if anything, has its own internal logic. And when I say internal logic, it's that, you know, you can have a fascinating text, which is rigorously talking about how to do a certain something in a practice. And all of a sudden, we meet the same rabbi who is supposedly being rational and logical, and he's talking about how the sages can create with their words. And then we're told about rabbis that are creating artificial people. Right? Get this. 2,000 years before scientists are creating sheep called Dolly, we have texts in the Talmud about rabbis who, who are envisioning, who are creating artificial people. Right? So, so the Talmud is, is, has its own inner logic. Right? We're not yet at rationalism. That's going to be our next book. But, but back to the first point. Something had to happen for the rabbinic revolution to take place. What happened? Someone had to kill the prophets, right? We, 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 something had to happen. The rabbis, this is, I'm not making this up. The rabbis taught in a brisa. 
when the latter prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi died at the beginning of the Second Temple era, divine spirits were, was withdrawn from the Jewish people. Okay, so so uh, we still have uh, Batkol, uh, you know, heavenly voice. Thank God for that. But the, the, so who writes the Talmud? Rabbis and rabbis are telling us there are no longer prophets. That's it. We're in town now. Now, a, a, a sort of a, a thought on, on this idea, right? So, so what's the problem with prophets when you think about it, right? Well, what's the problem in the Bible? We never listen to them. Jews never listen to prophets. Uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Moses, poor, you know, we don't listen. To, you know, who, you know, the, there's only one prophet in the whole Bible that was ever listened to. Who was it? Yonah. And who listened to him? Non-Jews. Jews don't listen to prophets. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's unheard of. But, but, but part of the issue, I think, and this is just a hypothesis, there's a problem with divine knowledge. And I think this is part of the, what, what the Talmud, the part of the revolution it's creating. Part of the problem with divine knowledge is it's true. There's no doubt that it's true when it happens. But we never know when it's going to happen. And we're never quite sure how to interpret it, right? This is because we're talking. This is this is this is from this is from a, a, an outer world, a spiritual world coming to us. And we'll get to Maimonides in a moment. Prophecy is a difficult thing, you know, and, and, and it's uncertain. And perhaps this might explain. So, so there's something about this rabbinic tradition that brings certainty back to man, certainty back to the Jew. And this might also help explain the thousands upon thousands of pages of not leaving a single rock unturned. Because this book has decided we will do everything we can to bring the power back to the people, back down to earth, so that we understand perfectly well what it how one should be a Jew. And it's got its own, as we said, internal logic. So if our first book, the purpose of the commandments is to differentiate us, the second book introduces this culture of asking questions. There isn't a single rock that's not going to be left unturned. And, and, and in a way, it, it strengthens this differentiation because we're still talking about differentiation. We're still talking about there is there is Jew, there is the world, and the commandments separate us. But but there's this extra culture added on, which is one of wanting to understand how we do this. Okay. Okay. Let's now move on. By the way, Shakespeare is completely shocked about what we just said. This idea that the prophets have been killed, right? This 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 takes a while to marinate. What really is going on? But okay, let's continue now. To our third book. Our third book, we're now talking medieval era, so you know, a thousand uh, um, by and large, you know, years ago, less, 900. Um, who, is, who is Moses Maimonides? So he's, he's born in Spain, Cordova, he gets an education in Fez in North Africa, he becomes the doctor of the Sultan uh, in Egypt, and he has a problem. Maimonides has a problem. He's sitting in shul, he's sitting in synagogue, and everyone's reading the Torah, right? We're reading, we're laning, we're, we're reading, we're reading about God's outstretched arm taking the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, you know how perhaps with some of us when we were kids, um, you know, we'd be sitting in class or in synagogue, and we'd have our, you know, our, our textbook, and inside it we'd have comics or we'd have a sports magazine. This is what Maimonides is experiencing in his synagogue. What Maimonides is experiencing in his synagogue is Jews who, uh, there's, this, there's this incredible rich influx of, of 
Arabic translations, because everyone is speaking Arabic, right? Judo-Arabic. They're writing in Hebrew letters, but in Arabic. He, he's, everyone is reading the Arab tra Arabic translations of Greek philosophy. They're reading Aristotle, they're reading Plato, they're reading Pythagoras, and this is what they're reading in synagogue. And they're reading what the Greeks have to say, the birth of rationalism, and they're perplexed. Because they read the Torah portion in, in you know, Exodus that tells us about God's outstretched arm. And yet Aristotle says that's not possible. It, it doesn't work. God doesn't have an outstretched arm. There's a sort of an initial prime mover that makes things happen. And people are perplexed. So Maimonides writes this book. So, so let's, let's see what he does. Right? What's going on here? We open up the first page. We want to understand what this book is about. We saw what the, how the Bible begins, how the Talmud begins. The Talmud began with a question, what goes on here? The first purpose of this treatise is to explain the meaning of certain terms occurring in books of prophecy. Some of these terms are equivocal, hence the ignorant attributed them only one or some of the meanings in which the term in question is used. It is not the purpose of this treatise to make it totally understandable to the vulgar or to the beginners in speculation. For the purpose of this treatise, and of all those like it is the science of the law in its true sense. To a religious man for whom the validity of our law has become established in his soul and has become actual in his belief, such a man being perfect in his religion and character and having studied the science of the philosophers and come to know what they signify, he must have helped, felt distressed by the externals of the law and by the meanings of the above mentioned. He would remain in a state of perplexity and confusion. This is how Maimonides begins his book. And one of the most interesting things to, to, to point out right at the outset is that, right, so if the Bible and the Talmud are meant to be for everyone, right, the Bible is definitely meant to be for everyone. And the Talmud, whether it's meant to be read by everyone or there are many illiterate, but they're meant to be, be, be told what is written there, our third most important book. And there is no doubt that Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed is one of the most, if not the third most important book, because it's cited more than any after him, is it's, it's aimed at the elite. It is aimed only at those Jews who are sitting in synagogue, who are reading and know how to read and understand Aristotle and Plato and his, their friends, read the Bible of perplexed and he wants to solve the problem. So if we like the revolution created by this third book, if the first book, if the Bible, the practice, what it means to be Jewish is to differentiate oneself from the rest of the rest of the world for an ethical purpose. Our third book is doing the exact opposite. Maimonides is going to build a bridge between Athens and Jerusalem. There is no more differentiation. And this, this new revolution is going to also introduce us to a new God. What does this new God look like? It follows necessarily from the 25th premise that there is a mover, which has moved the matter of that which is the subject of generation and corruption and so on and so forth. What's going on here? This, this text about my, the Maimonidean God could not be further away from the way the Bible began. In the beginning, it couldn't be further away from a God that with his outstretched hand, arm, takes the Israelites out of Egypt, a God that gets furious, a God that loves the Maimonidean God is a primal mover. He is a Greek God. This is building a bridge. And when we build a bridge, make no mistake, 
it has ramifications on what is the purpose of the commandments. If Maimonides is building a bridge between Athens and Greece, between Athens and Jerusalem, all of a sudden, the project becomes universal. The purpose of commandments is to perfect man. Now, what does that mean? It means that for Maimonides, man's goal, the elite man, right, is to perfect themselves. The Bible is all about how a Jew can perfect himself or herself. Aristotle could find ways to perfect himself, but it's about perfection. It's about refinement. It's about becoming complete. There is no longer any talk about differentiation. It is all about a universal project, ethical project of being the best person we can be. And all of a sudden, keeping commandments is about refinement. It's about being a better person. It's about being a mensch. If in the Bible, it wasn't about the Bible, it was about differentiating. The Talmud wants to understand how we differentiate. Maimonides, universal, building a bridge. It's about being a mensch. It's about refinement. It's a universal project. It's not unique in the sense that every man and woman on earth wants to be complete. Just to give a brief example, right? Because I mentioned at the start that if the Bible can be seen as a sort of original article that we no longer read all that much and we're looking at the op-eds, then if Maimonides' Guide of the Perplex is one of the most famous op-eds in Jewish history, then imagine if the original article told us, right? Let's go to one of the Torah portions where the original article tells us the three angels come to visit Abraham, right? We, we know this. It says that the text tells us they're angels. They come to visit Abraham. What will Maimonides, what will this new revolution that builds a rational, the revolution of rationalism that builds a bridge between Greece and Jerusalem, how will this op-ed interpret the original article? What does Maimonides say? He says, they weren't really angels. We know that's not possible. Rather, this whole episode should be seen as if Abraham had an epiphany, a vision, a dream, right? So this book changes everything. All of a sudden, many Jews are no longer perplexed because there's a bridge between Greece and Jerusalem. We can go to, you know, we can schluff peacefully because we now understand that the outstretched arm is not really outstretched. It's just a metaphor because that's the way people speak. And the purpose of, of keeping commandments is to be a mensch. Okay. However, that revolution only lasted for so long. Our final stop, our representative of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism. Of course, Jewish mysticism does not begin in the 13th century uh, 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 with sort of the, the crystallization of Kabbalah. Mysticism is already back in the Talmud, right? Creating artificial uh, men and, and so on and so forth. But, but there is a problem. And let's take this guy, right? Uh, uh, Rabbi Moses de Leon. Rabbi Moses de Leon, he is the head of a yeshiva in Guadalajara in Castile in Spain. He's in Castile. And if Maimonides' problem was the people in synagogue were reading uh, Plato and Aristotle and as a result, they were perplexed. All of a sudden in Spain, Jews are upset. They're in synagogue and they're upset for a different reason. Why are they upset? Because they're praying now. We're not reading the Torah. We're praying. We're praying. And yet we're reading Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed. And we can't help but ask, who is the God that we are praying to? Are we praying to this primal mover who isn't really interested in, in each and every one of us, but the grand scale of things? It's a bit depressing. It's a bit, it's, it's, it's difficult. 
people have a problem. And all of a sudden, this, this fourth revolution, and we're going to use the, the Zohar as a case study. I, we don't have time to get into when the Zohar was written, who wrote the Zohar. It's a fascinating topic for another time. But let's take the Zohar. All of a sudden, we're told there's a new book. It's going to solve everything. It's going to solve the sadness we have because we don't know who we're praying to. This faraway God that is in Never Never Land, we, all of a sudden, there's the Zohar. Now, what is the Zohar? So the Zohar is an interpretation of the Torah, of the Bible and a few other books, except not really. The Zohar is a mystical, the Zohar uses biblical passages in order to explain the secrets of the cosmos, the secrets of the universe, and the Zohar has a huge secret. What's the Zohar's secret? The things are complicated. The things are dynamic. And we're going to see in a moment what exactly that means. Let's see what the book looks like at the beginning. At the head of the potency of the king, he engraved engravings in luster on high. This is Daniel Matt's beautiful translation. I failed to mention before that the English translation that I brought before of uh, the Guide of the Perplexed was by the majestic translation of Professor Shlomo Pines um, by uh, Chicago University Press. This is Daniel Matt's beautiful majestic edition of uh, the, Pr the Pritzker edition, the Stanford edition of the Tsar. At the head of the potency of the king, he engraved engravings in luster on high. A spark of impenetrable darkness. Uh, we're not going to keep on, but, but the picture is clear. Everything here is complicated. We have a multiplicity of, you know what? Here's the passage we want. The, how does the Bible begin? What do we usually, how do we translate? How do we start Bereshit Bara? In the beginning, get what the Zohar does. This, this, is, this is wild. With this beginning, this is how the Zohar interprets what the beginning of the book means. With this beginning, the unknown concealed one created the palace. This palace is called Elohim, God. The secret is, with beginning, the ineffable source created God. What this means is this changes everything. It means that according to Zohar, it's not that in the beginning God created the world, but by means of wisdom. We're not at the beginning. That's why it's the greatest mistranslation in history. By means of wisdom, the unknown Ensof God that we can't speak about, the Maimonidean God, created Elohim, created the God that now we can talk about, the God that does listen, the God that we can pray to, the dynamic God. That's the first lesson, the main lesson Kabbalah wants to teach us, the Zohar wants to teach us, is that God is dynamic. There is a Maimonidean philosophical, there is that God that is far away that we can't mention, we can't even grapple, begin to grapple. But then there is the God that listens to each and every one of our words and our prayers, and we must pray. And, and there's another secret. The other secret is that we must pray and that we must keep commandments because God needs our help. If the first book is about differentiation, the practice of God differentiating us, and then we differentiate for some ethical project, according to Kabbalah and the Zohar, unlike the third book, Maimonides, where it's about refinement, it's about being a mensch, a universal project, according to the Zohar, God is in danger. If there is this dynamic reality, there are forces of good and evil, impurity, impurity, fighting each other, and each commandment that we keep. Each transgression that we stay away from adds another foot soldier in the fight between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And another secret the Zohar has to teach us 
And this is the greatest secret of them all because it's about the first book. The greatest secret of the czar is that our first book, the Bible, isn't a book. It's not a book. It's God. The czar teaches us that the book, the Bible, is God. God has concealed himself, hidden himself or herself because there are feminine and masculine aspects of God. It's dynamic. God has concealed him and herself inside the text for us to learn, to hear, to discuss, to find to gain the tools to understand how we can uh, uh, fight this cosmic war between the forces of good and evil. And in that sense, the purpose of keeping commandments, what it means to be Jewish as a super Jew, is to save the cosmos. All of a sudden, right, if, if Maimonides, it's about this universal practice of being a mensch in Kabbalah, no, it's, it's that God needs our help. God's hands attack shackled but, but behind his and her back, and God needs us. And much like God needs us, there is, everything in this world is a mirroring image of the world above. And in that sense, our umbilical cord, the umbilical cord is not an umbilical cord, but, but, it, but it also hints, alludes to something higher above. And each and everything that we do in this world and that we see has to be prepared and done in a certain way because it has ramifications, grand ramifications of what happens above. And in this sense, we, we, we conclude our, our, our uh, 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 four, four stops, our four books, right? We looked at the Bible. We looked at the Talmud. We looked at the guide of the perplexed, and we looked at the Zohar. We looked at the, the, the biblical revolution, the Talmudic revolution. The first one was about what it means to be Jewish. And we gave a, a, a hypothesis. It's about differentiation, lehavdil. And we could argue what this means, but it does mean differentiate. And then the second book is about the how, the rigorous, not willing to stop at anything, question-asking culture of how to be a Jew. And it strengthens this differentiation. And it has its own internal logic. And it killed the prophets for the birth of the rabbi in order to bring certainty back to man so that we know how to be a Jew. And then the third revolution, Maimonides, breaks the differentiation and builds a bridge between Greece and, 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 and Jerusalem because the world has changed. And there's a universal project. And then a fourth revolution says, no, 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 no. The first book is in the book. It is God. The second book reveals hints and secrets. Not about the Zohar teaches us not that the Talmud is about how to be a Jew, but the Talmud teaches us how to help God. The Talmud teaches us, according to Kabbalah, according to Zohar, how do we help God? And the Talmud teaches us that the guide of the perplex is important in order to understand the aspect of God that we can't touch, in Suf. But there is a dynamic aspect of God, and there is a God that listens and hears each and everything that, that we do, and God needs us, and we can find this God within the Bible. This has been our journey. This has been our, 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 our quest to understand what it means to be Jewish, to, to, to add a little bit, to uh, uh, um, uh, enrich ourselves with, with these four books. And now, of course, we're open to uh, uh, any questions or comments. Thank you very much. If anyone has a, a question or comment, feel free. Uh, uh. Okay, in that case, thank you very much.
if there are no questions or, or, or if you have any questions in terms of citations or, or, or bits or anything, I hope you enjoyed yourself uh, and that we've uh, um, um, that, that we've learned something. And like I said, this is just that the hope uh, of this of, of this time that we're spending together is not to give us the answers, but to make us want to go back to those books, back to the Bible, because you know what? I, I, I don't want you to buy anything of what I've said. I want you to go back to the Bible and say, you know what? I don't think it's about differentiating. Find those passages. Send them. Send me an email. I want you to go to, let's go to the Talmud. Right? What's going on there? Did they really kill the prophets or is it more complicated? Let's go into the guide of the perplexed and try and understand, did Maimonides really create a universal project? Is that really what's going on there? And, and, and the Zohar, is the Zohar really as mystical as it seems? Or does it have more in common with Maimonides than we think? Right, so, so my hope is that you don't agree with a lot of what I, like I said, if, if we have more questions but with a smile on our face, then, then we've done something. So I, so I hope this has sort of contributed to understanding of what it means to be Jewish. Uh, I gained, you know, looked at some, you know, interesting passages uh, um, and, you know, open to any discussion in the future. Thank you very much. Great, thank you so much everyone for joining us and thank you to the speaker today, it was lovely. Take thank care. You. Thank you very much.